Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 19 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on pretty much whatever topic we want to talk about. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and alongside me is Chad Knight. Hey, guys. We are going to be continuing on our decade series of the number one hits going throughout a year, and this year, this episode, I should say, we're going to be dealing with the 1960s. Yeah, brother man. We're getting all groovy and... We're not popping any pills or getting all psychedelic or anything. That's for the 70s. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. A lot of stuff happened in the 60s. We're not going in for a history lesson here. We're just getting into music. So let's start it off with 1960. All right. 1960. Theme from a Summer Place by Percy Faith and his orchestra. This one was atop the uh, charts for nine weeks in 1960. So Percy Faith was a Canadian band leader, orchestrator, composer and conductor known for his lush arrangements of pop and Christmas standards. He is often credited with popularizing the quote-unquote easy listening or mood music format. What music? Mood music. Mood music. Okay. What did you think I said? I, I didn't know what you said. That's why I asked you to repeat it. All right. So Faith became a staple of American popular music in the 1950s and continued well into the 60s. Let's listen to this number one. Though his professional orchestra leading career began at the height of the swing era, Faith refined and rethought orchestration techniques, including use of large string sections to soften and fill out the brass-dominated popular music of the 1940s. This is a um, instrumental. Mm-hmm. It's a very common instrumental. It is, and I actually enjoy theme from a summer place. I do too, and it, it makes me think of Animal House. Yes, that is an Animal House, isn't it? It is, because I think it's, if I remember correctly, I haven't seen the movie in such a long time, it's basically when somebody's trying to get laid. Yeah, it's it's when he's trying to have sex with that underage girl, and she's like, right. she like shit-faced, and she falls over, her tits are hanging out, and he's got paper in his yeah, hands. Yeah, but I do remember that being in there, and that's the first thing that comes to mind, not the underage girl, of course, because that's just gross. I know. That is the worst line in that entire movie, is at the end of the movie, as they're, they've hooked up again, this guy that's in college and this girl that he doesn't know how old she is. He thinks she's 16, I should say, actually. And they're laying in the center of the football field, and he goes, I kind of lied to you as they're both getting naked to have sex or whatever. He goes, I've never done this before. And she's like, what, made out with a girl? She, he goes, no, you know, the what I think we're about to do. And she goes... Well, that's okay. I, I lied to you, too. He goes, oh, yeah? About what? I'm only 14. Yeah, it's, you know, that's another one of those things where it would not fly today. No, oh, God, Animal House would never get off the floor. No, it wouldn't. Um, that being said, it is still an American classic. It is. I love the movie. I own it. Um, I own the double secret probation, probation edition. Ed- edition, yeah. Which the only really different, I mean, they didn't change the movie at all, but they have a where are they now type thing. At, they have a small mini movie of where they are now. Graveyard, graveyard acting, graveyard acting. No, not the actual actors, <laughs> the characters. <laughs> but anyway, let's jump to 1961. Okay. Tossing and Turning by Bobby Lewis. This was atop the charts for seven weeks, 
Robert Allen Bobby Lewis is an American rock and roll and rhythm and blues singer. Lewis learned to play the piano by age six, despite very poor eyesight. Adopted at age 12, he moved to a home in Detroit, Michigan, growing up with the influences of the pioneer blues musicians until the advent of rock and roll. Lewis began to build a musical career in the 1950s. He moved to New York City. Let's toss this one on the old turn machine. I couldn't sleep at all last night. In July 1961, his recording of Tossin' and Turnin' went to number one for seven weeks on the Billboard chart. It sold over one million copies and was awarded a gold disc. Later that year, he had a second top ten song, One Track Mind, his only other major hit record, at number nine. So, I mean, this is just one of those fun songs, Tossin' and Turnin'. It is. It's it's an oldie that yep. I think everybody knows. If you've ever listened to any of the oldie stations, that one usually comes up here. You may not know who sang it, but you know the song. Right. I wouldn't have known who sang it, to be honest with you. But, uh, yeah, it's just a fun song, and uh, we're going to jump into 1962. Now, 1962 is one of those years where we said that sometimes you run across multiple musicians having number ones at the top for the same amount of time. Right. 1962 is actually huge. Yeah, it, It's got three different songs. They were all at the top of the charts for five weeks. That tells you that's 15 weeks. So that's a quarter of the year, basically. America could not make up its goddamn mind. Because the rest of the year, everything was one or two. I think the maybe three. Maybe they got the three weeks. There was but, a four spot in there, actually. Oh, was there? Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so the first song we're going to talk about is I Can't Stop Loving You by Ray Charles. So like I said, five weeks at the top. Ray Charles Robinson, known professionally as Ray Charles, was an American singer-songwriter, musician, and composer. Among friends and fellow musicians, he preferred being called Brother Ray, often referred to as the genius. Charles was blind from the age of seven. He pioneered the genre of soul music during the 1950s by combining blues, rhythm and blues, and gospel styles into the music he recorded for Atlanta Records. He also contributed to the integration of country music, rhythm, and blues, he also contributed to the integration of country music, rhythm and blues, and pop music during the 1960s with his crossover success on ABC Records, most notably with his two Modern Sounds albums. While he was with ABC, Charles became one of the first black musicians to be granted artistic control by a mainstream record company. I can't stop loving Ray. So let's listen to this number one. Charles cited Nat King Cole as a primary influence, but his music was also influenced by country, jazz, blues, and rhythm and blues artists of the day, including Louis Jordan and Charles Brown. In the late 40s, he became friends with Quincy Jones. Their friendship would last till the end of Charles's life. Frank Sinatra called him, quote, the only true genius in show business, although Charles downplayed this notion. In 2002, Rolling Stones ranked Charles number 10 on its list of the 100 greatest artists of all time and number 2 on their November 2008 list of the 100 greatest singers of all time. Billy Joel observed, This may sound like sacrilege, but I think Ray Charles was more important than Elvis Presley. 
That's a great quote. It's a great quote. And, you know, I actually almost would kind of half agree with that. I would. As far as how he influenced music. He influenced music. And whereas, yes, Elvis was the king. He brought in your gospel. He brought in your blues. He brought in your rock and roll. But then there's Ray, who brought in all those other genres in addition to. And Ray was the man. I mean... I didn't see the biopic, the Jamie Foxx one. I haven't seen that one yet either. Um, did it win an Oscar? It may. Have. I know it was up for an Oscar. Yeah. Um, Whether it won one or not, I don't know. But I mean, say what you will about him as a person, which is kind of they, the clips I saw of the movie. He was kind of a dick. But that being said, you can't take the credit away from the guy being a musical genius. No, and that's the thing though is when you hear about. In a lot of cases, when people are a genius or, or very good at something they do, they tend to be dicks. It's something that happens throughout... What's well, the explosion of the ego. Yeah. Now, the next two songs, I'm actually going to kind of clump them together a little bit. I'm okay with that. We have the song Sherry by The Four Seasons, which was atop the list for five weeks. Let's go ahead and take a listen to that clip right now. Yeah. All right, and then they also had another number one that year for five weeks, and it was Big Girls Don't Cry. The Four Seasons is an American rock and pop band that became internationally successful in the 1960s and 1970s. The Vocal Group Hall of Fame has stated that the group was the most popular rock band before the Beatles. Since 1970, they have also been known at times as Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. In 1960, the group known as the Four Lovers evolved into the Four Seasons, with Frankie Valli as the lead singer, Bob Guadio, formerly of the Royal Teens on keyboards and tenor vocals, Tommy DeVito on lead guitar and baritone vocals, and Nick Masai on electric bass and bass vocals. The legal name of the organization is the Four Seasons Partnership, formed by Guadio and Valli, taken after a failed audition in 1960. While singers, producers, and musicians have come and gone, Guado and Valley remain the group's constant, each owning 50% of the act and its assets, including virtually all of the recording catalog. Let's go ahead and listen to Big Girls Don't Cry. So Guadio no longer plays live, leaving Valley the only member of the group from its inception who was touring as of 2017. The Four Seasons, group members from 1960 to 66, were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990 and joined the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 1999. They are one of the best-selling musical groups of all time, having sold an estimated 100 million records worldwide. Wow. That's a lot of records. It absolutely is. Now, I like the Four Seasons. The song Sherry, it's it's... Not one of my favorites because it's kind of high-pitchy and squeaky. Kind of? Well, I'm trying to be nice here. Yeah, it is kind of high-pitched and squeaky. However, a lot of the Four Seasons stuff was. I mean, Frankie Valli just had that, he had that voice. Yeah, and Big Girls Don't Cry, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when I listen to the two songs, Sherry is more grating than Big Girls Don't Cry. I would agree. Neither one of these are one of my favorites by them. Um, one of my favorites actually was a 1963 one that 
we're not going to talk about, but it's Walk Like a Man. Oh, yeah. Which is a good one and makes me think of a Howie Mandel movie. Okay. I'll show it to you later. It's entertaining. But yeah, that one, it's high, but it's not ear-bleedingly high. Right. Where Sherry is ear-bleeding, eyes-bleeding kind of high. If I was the Sherry, I'd be like, I appreciate you wrote a song for me, but turn it off, please. <laughs> All right. So 1963, Sugar Shack by Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs. This spent five weeks at the top of the list. This is the only one of the year that's spent only five weeks. So again, as in 1962, in 1963, America couldn't make up its damn mind. Not at all. So the Fireballs, sometimes billed as Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs. And I slow down on Gilmer because I always want to say Glimmer. And I don't know why. But they were an American rock and roll group, particularly popular at the end of the 1950s and in the early 1960s. The original 1958 lineup was George Tomasco, Chuck Thwart, Stan Lark, Eric Budd, and Dan Trammell. The Fireballs were formed in Ratton, New Mexico in 1958 and got their start as an instrumental group featuring the very distinctive lead guitar of George Tomasco. They recorded at Norman Petty Studio in Clovis, New Mexico. According to the group founders Tomasco and Lark, they took their name from Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire. They reached the top 40 with the singles Torquay, Bulldog, and Quite a Party. Quite a Party peaked at number 29 in the UK singles chart in August, 8, in August 1961. Thwarp, Bud, and Trammell left the group in the early 1960s, but the Fireballs added Doug Roberts on drums, plus Petty Studio singer pianist Jimmy Gilmer to the group. Uh, let's take a listen. Well, it's just a coffee house and it's made out of wood. Espresso coffee tastes mighty good. That's not the reason why I've got to get back up to that sugar shack. Well, baby, to that sugar shack. Billed as Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs, the group reached number one on the Billboard charts with Sugar Shack, which remained in that position for five weeks in 1963. The single also reached number one on Billboard's R&B chart for one week in November of that year, but its run on the chart was cut short because Billboard ceased publishing an R&B chart from November 30th, 1963 to January 23rd, 1965. Nonetheless, Sugar Shack earned the group a gold record award for the top song of 1963. In the UK, the song peaked at number 45. Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs then had another pop hit in 1964 with a similar-sounding Daisy Petal Pickin', which reached number 15 on the Hot 100. I like the song Sugar Shack. It's all right. It's, it's just one of those fun... It's, it's definitely a 60s song. Mm -hmm. If you're going to hear it, you're going to go, that's the 60s or, you know, it's, that, that's It's a period-defining piece. Yes, absolutely. So, up next... All right, I'm going to forewarn you, this is a Beatles song. The Beatles actually have two uh, songs on this uh, countdown, but not in 64. In 64, the song I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles was atop the charts for seven weeks. The Beatles were an English rock band formed in Liverpool in 1960, with members John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. They became widely regarded as the foremost and most influential act of the rock era. Rooted in skiffle, beat, and 1950s rock and roll, the Beatles later experimented with several musical styles, ranging from pop ballads and Indian music to psychedelia and hard rock, often incorporating classical elements and unconventional recording techniques in innovative ways. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Oh yeah, I tell you something I think you'll understand When I say that something I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. 
1963, their enormous popularity first emerged as, quote-unquote, Beatlemania, and as the group's member grew in sophistication in subsequent years, led by primary songwriters Lennon and McCartney, they became to be perceived as an embodiment of the ideals shared by the counterculture of the 1960s. More Beatles in just a few songs. Absolutely, and honestly, I mean, appreciative of the history, but really, I don't, I couldn't point out a person who doesn't know who the Beatles are. No, you can't. And well, I suppose you can. The, the newer generation, my kids know who the Beatles are, but I have talked to friends of theirs that they they know a song or two, but they don't really know what the Beatles were. My girls kind of don't have a choice. <laughs> the, right, and I mean, they're oh, there's those guys with those haircuts. Yeah, yeah, it's you know like. <sighs> I'll tell the story someday, but, you know, like Bon Jovi, the country music singer. Let's take a pass on the Bon Jovi country singer because that's uh, at least 40 years down the road. (laughs) All right, so 1965, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. I topped the chart for four weeks. And as I mentioned, uh, it shares a spot with the Beatles, but we'll get to them in a second. So the Rolling Stones are an English rock band formed in London in 1962. The original lineup consisted of Brian Jones... Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts, and Ian Stewart. Stewart was removed from the official lineup in 1963, but continued as a touring member until his death in 1985. Jones left the band less than a month prior to his death in 1969, having already been replaced by Mick Taylor, who remained until 1974. After Taylor left the band, Ronnie Wood took his place in 1975 and has been on guitar in tandem with Richards ever since. Following Wyman's departure in 1993, Daryl Jones joined as their touring bassist. Other touring keyboardists for the band have been Nicky Hopkins, Billy Preston, and Chuck Lavelle. The band was was first led by Jones, but after teaming as the band's songwriters, Jaeger and Richards assumed leadership while Jones dealt with legal and personal troubles. Let's see why they can't get no satisfaction. Rolling Stones were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989 and the UK Music Hall of Fame in 2004. Rolling Stone magazine ranked them fourth on the 100 Greatest Artists of All Time list, and their estimated album sales are above 250 million. They have released 30 studio albums, 18 live albums, and numerous compilations. Let It Bleed 1969 was their first of five consecutive number one studio and live albums in the UK. Sticky Fingers 1971 was the first of eight consecutive number one studio albums in the US. In 2008, the band ranked 10th on the Billboard Hot 100 all-time top artist chart. And in 2012, the band celebrated its 50th anniversary. What do you you say about the Stones? That hasn't already been said? Yeah. I mean... The Stones are amazing. They are. I mean, it's... It's a generational thing, too. I mean, their newer stuff, not as much of a fan of, but at the same time, between the 60s and actually the 80s, maybe, I'd say, is defining. Absolutely. And, I mean, right now, they're they're all so old. And and I hate to say that, but they are a bunch of corpses up on stage. But Keith Richards will never die. He won't. He won't. He's going to – he is the uh, first lich. He is basically the nuclear cockroach of humankind. There you go. 
All right, so the other song for 1965 was Yesterday by the Beatles. And just a little more Beatles stuff here because, well, I like the Beatles. So the Beatles are the best-selling band in history, with an estimated sales of over 600 million records worldwide. They have more number one albums on the British charts and sold more singles in the UK than any other act. According to the RIAA, the Beatles are also the best-selling music artists in the United States, with 178 million certified units. In 2008, the group topped Billboard magazine's list of the all-time most successful Hot 100 artists as of 2017. They hold the record for the most number one hits on the Hot 100 chart with 20. They have received 10 Grammy Awards, an Academy Award for Best Original Song Score, and 15 Ivor Novello Awards. Ivor Novello Awards. The group was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, and all four were inducted individually from 1994 to 2015. They were also collectively included in Time Magazine's compilation of the 20th century's 100 Most Influential People. Let's talk about yesterday. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Though we, or I should say I, could talk about the Beatles for hours, let's say goodnight to them for now. Good night, Paul, Ringo, George, and John. Again, Beatles... The Beatles are the Beatles. I mean, there's not a whole lot that can be said about them that hasn't been said. I love the band. You're kind of gray on the band, but... I'm not a hater, but I'm not a lover either. Yep, yeah, and that's that's fair enough. So, on to 1966. Ballad of the Green Beret by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. Five weeks of top the number one space. So, Barry Allen Sadler was an American military veteran, author, actor, and singer-songwriter. Sadler served as a Green Beret combat medic with the rank of Staff Sergeant of the United States Army during the Vietnam War. Most of his work has a military theme, and he credited himself in the proper Army form as SSG Barry Sadler. Although his music usually credits read SSGT Barry Sadler, he is most famously known for his hit song, Ballad of the Green Berets. Let's listen to it now, sir. Yes, sir! Silver wings upon their chest These are men America's best One hundred men Will test today But only three When the Green Berets Sadler recorded his now famous song The Ballad of the Green Berets A patriotic song about the special forces In January 1966 The recording was encouraged by writer Robin Moore Author of the novel The Green Berets Which became a 1968 movie The Green Berets featuring John Wayne The Ballad of the Green Berets Arranged as a choral version by Ken Darby Was the title song of the movie Moore also wrote an introduction to Sadler's autobiography I'm a Lucky One which he dictated to Tom Mahoney and published by Macmillan Company in 1967. The Ballad of the Green Berets was released by RCA Victor Records, becoming a fast-selling single, holding number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for five consecutive weeks from March to April of 1966. The record sold more than one million copies. The song was a great success in many U.S. cities. It scored five weeks at number one on the weekly Good Guys Music Survey at WMCA the top popular music radio station in New York during 1966. He sang it for his television debut on on The Ed Sullivan Show. Sadler recorded an album of similarly themed songs, which he titled Ballads of the Green Berets. It sold a million copies during the first five weeks of its release. 
Sadler had another minor success, similarly patriotic-themed The A-Team, later the same year when that single scored number 28. Great song. It's it's almost depressing if you listen to it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's supposed to because it's a serious topic. It's about war. It's about war. It's about, you know, go men going to die but doing their job that they're, they signed up for. Um, on a lighthearted note of it, did you say the guy's name was Barry Allen? Barry Allen Sadler. Isn't Barry Allen the name of the Flash in DC Comics? Maybe. So that was <laughs> that was your takeaway from this. That was one of my takeaways. I'm trying to lighten it up a little bit because that song was depressing as hell. Well, the next the next one, 1967. This is a much lighter song, and I know this is a song you're a fan of. I am. So I'm a believer by the Monkees. Six top six weeks atop the number one list. The Monkees are an American rock band originally active between 1965 and 71. Okay, I'm gonna stop right there because I honestly thought the Monkees were British. I did too, just because of Davy Jones's accent. Yeah. And I will say this just ahead of time: we did this one for Misheard Lyrics too. Yes, you're right. We did. So, with subsequent reunion albums and tours in the decades that followed, they were formed in Los Angeles in 1965 by Bob Raffleson and Bert Schneider for the American television series The Monkees, which aired from 1966 to 1968. The musical acting quartet was composed of Americans Mickey Dolenz, Michael Nesmith, and Peter Tork, and British actor and singer Davy Jones. The band's music was initially supervised by producer Don Kirshner, backed by the songwriting duo of Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. For the first few months of their initial five-year career as The Monkees, the four actor-musicians were allowed only limited roles in the recording studio. This was due in part to the amount of time required to film the television series. Nonetheless, Nesmith did compose and produce some songs from the beginning, and Peter Tork contributed limited guitar work on the sessions produced by Nesmith. They eventually fought for and earned the right to collectively supervise all musical output under the band's name. The sitcom was canceled in 1968, but the band continued to record music through 1971. Let's grab a banana and listen to this song. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. about you but i absolutely watched the monkeys tv show oh god yeah it was on nick and nick at night yep dolan's described the monkeys as initially being a quote tv show about an imaginary band that wanted to be the beatles but that was never successful unquote the actor musicians became ironically one of the most successful bands of the 1960s the monkeys have sold more than 75 million records worldwide and had international hits including the last train to clarksville pleasant valley sunday daydream believer and i'm a believer at their peak in 1967, the band outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones combined. Really? There you go. That's pretty awesome, actually. You're a Monkees fan. You take this one. You know what? I just, I find them to be a fun band. They are. You know, I mean, their music itself, I mean, they're, I think Dolan's actually said it the best. They, they're kind of a Beatles, but not really successful Beatles because <laughs> they just have fun with it. I mean... If you think about it, too, they did the TV show, which I think the Beatles tried to do a movie which wasn't very successful. The Beatles actually did three movies. Well, that, that shows either how limited I know or how successful they were. Yes. <laughs> right. But, I mean, again, too, watching it, I had a bit of a soft spot because I enjoyed the hell out of the show. It was funny. And they had decent music, and regardless if they actually played their instruments or not, I didn't care. 
because it was just entertaining. Okay, fair enough. Now, I watched the show as well. I like the monkeys, I'm not going to lie. But they're they're not up there for me. No, they're, they're kind of B-Squad. Yeah. But um, they're still very entertaining, and I see no problem with the greatest hits. No, I, I would agree. So, 1968, uh, good morning. It's uh, Hey Jude by the Beatles. They spent nine weeks atop the number one. The Beatles built their reputation playing clubs in Liverpool and Hamburg over a three-year period from 1960, with Stuart Sutcliffe initially serving as bass player. The core of Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison went through a succession of drummers, including Pete Best, before asking Starr to join them. Manager Brian Epson molded them into a professional act, and producer George Martin guided and developed their recordings, greatly expanding their popularity in the United Kingdom after their first hit, Love Me Do in late 1962. They acquired the nickname the Fab Four as Beatlemania grew in Britain the next year, and by early 1964 became international stars leading the British invasion of the United States pop market. Let's invade your ear holes. Hey Jude, don't let me down. You have found her. From 1965 onwards, the Beatles produced increasingly innovative recordings, including the albums Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, The Beatles, commonly known as The White Album, and Abbey Road. After their breakup in 1970, they each enjoyed successful musical careers of varying lengths. McCartney and Starr, the surviving members, remained musically active. Lennon was shot and killed in December of 1980, and Harrison died of lung cancer in November 2001. So there you go. We've already kind of talked the Beatles to death, so let's move on to 1969. Again, 1969 has two songs that were atop the charts, six weeks each. So let's start with Aquarius by The Fifth Dimension. The Fifth Dimension is an American popular music and vocal group whose repertoire includes pop, R&B, soul, jazz, light opera, and Broadway. The melange as co- was coined as Champagne Soul. Formed as the Versatiles in late 1965, the group changed its name to The Hipper, The Fifth Dimension, by 1966. They became well-known during the late 1960s and early 1970s for their popular hits Up, Up, and Away, Stoned Soul Picnic, Medley, Aquarius Slash Let the Sunshine In, The Flesh Failures, Wedding Bell Blues, One Less Bell to Answer, I Didn't Get to Sleep at All, and Magic Garden. Let's sample Aquarius. As of April 2009, the group was actively touring as the Fifth Dimension featuring Florence LaRue. Led by LaRue with Willie Williams, Leonard Tucker, Patrice Morris, and Floyd Smith. Celebrating 45 years of marriage, McCoo and Davis continued to tour separately from the Fifth Dimension as their own act, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. In October 2011, McCoo and Davis were featured on the Cliff Richard album Solicious, appearing live on stage and in tour of the same name reprising several of their hits as well as duetting with Richard. In 2013, McCoo and Davis released their own double CD project, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Live. On February 14, 2015, McLemore released an autobiographical memoir, From Hobo Flats to the Fifth Dimension, A Life Fulfilled in Baseball, Photography, and Music. 
On June 21, 2016, The Fifth Dimension featuring Florence LaRue performed in the Villages, Florida just days after the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting. Band leader Florence LaRue took the opportunity to share her thoughts on the tragedy. We will not be terrorized. We know what's happening in the world, but this is a song about good health, love, peace, and happiness. We still believe in those things today, she stated before the group performed Aquarius. I like the song Aquarius. I do, and I have to say, if there is a way to make a song mean hippie, <laughs> that's this it. Is it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. This is it. I mean, there's there's no other way. I mean, this is a, a true hippie song. I mean, it's a good song. I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And it just makes it kind of flow. You know, oh, absolutely. I can only imagine if you had some mind-altering substance in your system, listening to the song would probably be a heavy trip. Yeah, I would imagine. The other song from 1969. I'm going to uh, be honest. I wish you would have done that one first so we could end on a good note. Well, you know, the way they fell and when they were number ones and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I didn't do it the way you wanted me to. That's what I'm getting at. Okay, whatever. So, in the year 2525 by Zager and Evans, and Lou's over there pinching the bridge of his nose, mm-hmm. looking very sad. You listened to this before. You dug it just as much as I did. I know. Zager and Evans was a U.S. rock-pop duo in the late 1960s and early 1970s, named after its two members, Denny Zager and Rick Evans. They are best known for their 1969 hit single, In the Year 2525. I'm sorry, but let's take a listen. In the So, In the Year 2525 was written by Richard Evans, or Rick Evans. It was registered with the performing rights organization Broadcast Music, Inc. The song warned of the dangers of technology, portraying a future in which human, the human race was destroyed by its own technological and medical innovations. The last stanza of the song suggests mankind undergoes a continuing cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. In the year 2525, hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1969. It claimed the number one spot for six weeks. It was also top the charts in the UK. It was number one in the United States, the first manned moon landing by astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. It continued to top the charts while the Woodstock Music Festival was going on. It was nominated for a special Hugo Award that same year. It sold over 4 million copies by 1970 and was awarded a gold disc by the Recording Industry Association of America in 1969. The song was originally written in 1964 and recorded and released in 1968 on the Truth Records label. After radio stations in Lincoln and Omaha turned the record into a regional breakout hit record, RCA Records signed the duo and re-released the song nationwide. They also immediately recorded a follow-up album of the same name using Trupp and Dalton as the primary rhythm section. Sales of the original hit recording, including single sales, album usage, and compilation inclusions, now total over 10 million units worldwide. Why? I I don't know. I, I really have no idea. There's... He's got a good harmony. I'm going to try to give the good and the bad here. Okay. He's They've got good harmony. The music itself is not... Horrible. Horrible. That being said... And actually, it's got a good story. It does. But it's like any joke that goes on way too long. But just, it's like any Family Guy sketch when, like, when he's holding his knee and he's just like, ow, ow. 
it just will not end. I mean, it goes on to what was the final count at the end? Of 10,000 years later. 10,000 years later, and they go up by a thousand years at a time. So there's 10 stanzas to this song yep. that they continue to go on over and over. And really, you could have said this in three. Easily. Easily. You know, I appreciate you're telling a story. I understand you're trying to be socially conscious, but it's time to wrap it up here. You know, like, get the hook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, that wraps up this episode, uh, 1960s number ones. We want to thank you for listening. If you want to reach out to us and let us know what you think of this series of our um, decades, you can do so. There's a couple ways to do that. First way you can do that is simply through emails. Drop us an email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us if you're more into that social media thing on Facebook at Musically Challenged Podcast. You can find us out there. Drop us a note there as well. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.